the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at why Brexit has meant more immigration than ever before, we'll be learning why Turkey is at an existential crossroads, and we'll be asking whether reality TV is ruining sport. First up, Frizenal Sinar editor writes in this week's cover story about how Brexit has led to Britain having more rather than less immigration. So is Rishi Sunak's government masking its own dysfunction in the welfare system by bringing in people to fill vacant jobs? Fraser joins us now alongside our economics editor, Kate Andrews. Fraser, some listeners might be surprised to hear your argument, but do you think that this should be seen as a positive? Well, certainly when we were having the Brexit debate, all sides agree that there will be significantly less immigration. The big drawback to EU membership was free movement. The country wasn't able to control its borders. And so we'd ended up with um, hundreds of thousands, I think during the campaign, almost a third of a million net migration at a time when the government was saying it wanted it to be tens of thousands. So that sounded, A, like a problem out of control, and B, a problem that could only be controlled by leaving the European Union and regaining border control. So right now, we have a system of visas. If you want to come into this country to work, then you need to get permission, and that's several criteria you need to fill in. You need to speak English, you need to get a a job over a certain salary level in an approved sector, etc., But the funny thing is that all of these criteria have led to the biggest influx of immigration in the history of these islands. And next week we're going to, we're we're led to believe that we're going to be told that the net migration figure isn't the tens of thousands that Suala Braverman, the Home Secretary, wants. It's going to be north of 700,000. Now, this is the exact opposite of what everybody modelled during Brexit. But also, I have to say, I think this is the... um, nail in the coffin for the idea that Brexit was ever going to reduce immigration and therefore increase salaries. During the campaign, Stuart Rose, the former chief of Marks and Spencers, was talking about, um, isn't it strange how, you know, if you if you were to get a, a decrease in migration, uh, then salaries might go up, labour costs would go up, and that's not necessarily a good thing, he was saying. From some employer's point of view, perhaps he was right, but most, most labour voters wanted that to happen. They wanted the salaries to go up. They wanted employers to regard um, local workers as being rarer, more valuable, more worth training. But none of that has happened. In fact, we've ended up with um, immigration figures that would have been almost inconceivable during the Brexit debate. Kate, if these figures are, as Fraser just said, the nail in the coffin to the idea that Brexit was going to reduce immigration... Do you think there are people who will see this as a betrayal of Brexit, as a country that hasn't taken back control uh, of immigration numbers? There certainly are people who will see it that way. I don't disagree that during the Brexit debate, the, the strong implication was that leaving the European Union would not only end free movement, but as a result of that, 
reduce overall migration figures. But I think it's very important to remember that the concept of taking back control was the one that was actually held up and sold, not the concept of definitely having lower figures. And it's quite telling that in many ways one of the ultimate Brexiteers, Boris Johnson, who then became prime minister, ushered in a new set of immigration laws that basically took away any pathway for low-skilled migrants to come to this country unless they were in a shortages job and then, you know, we're talking carers, we're talking nurses, we're talking people we vitally need in this country. And yet... It was a very liberal policy. It brought in uh, a reduction to the salary threshold so that more people could come here from all over the world. It was quite generous to students. And when we look at that overall figure, which we're going to know definite next week, at the moment that estimate, as Fraser says in his cover piece, is around 700,000, we have to break down who those people are and we have to have a discussion about who we wouldn't want here. I mean, these are high school workers. These are net contributors. These are people who are studying. These are refugees. And so for some people, that overall figure might great, but actually, I think a lot of control has been taken back. We have not gone back to pre-Brexit times. This is, a, this is a very, very different kind of system. And it's one that I'm personally in favor of, and I think I would be under almost any condition. I mean, I'd go further. I'd like more pathways for low-skilled migrants, but I realize I'm probably in the minority on that. I disagree with this assessment that this has um, hurt Native workers. And the evidence I take is from Fraser's cover piece. Fraser says we haven't seen wages going up, but the first paragraph of his cover piece this week is talking about how you can work as a sales manager for £75,000 in Manchester, about how you can get paid to post TikTok videos for £20 an hour. We have a record, almost record high, we have almost record high vacancies in this country, well over a million. It does not seem to be the case that a record number of immigrants coming in is making it hard for Native workers to get jobs. In fact, salaries are skyrocketing because they're trying to get Native workers into the jobs and they're not taking them. That's a very important part of Fraser's cover piece, and I think we should talk about welfare, but this idea that you have to choose between more immigrants and getting more Native people back into work, I, I think is a false choice. Okay, sorry, just a just aside for one second from the question of, of jobs, if this is a strategy, a government strategy, using mass immigration to, to plug holes in, in the workforce, are there not other things to consider, such as the pressure put on housing, put on schools, put on hospitals? I mean, you know, these these if we're getting close to a million uh, immigrants a year, they will need places to live. Uh, and, and we already have NHS waiting lists so long and so on and so on. I mean, are those not issues that one might have with uh, with a scheme such as this? There are definitely issues, but I don't think immigrants are responsible for the Town and Country Planning Act. I don't think immigrants are responsible for the National Health Service. It is not a surprise that Tesco never complains about having more customers that can fill those needs. It's everything that is controlled and run by the state that can't. And I think we're moving into a, a pretty ugly phase, actually, but one that is as old as time, where when the state buckles, when the state can't deliver, when we all feel poor, Migrants are the first to have the finger pointed at them, and I think we have to, uh, you know, I think we have to resist the urge to misplace blame here. And Fraser, can you take us through how you see Rishi's role in all of this? Because you sort of imply in your piece that he is very much aware of the situation, but is perhaps not being quite as honest with people as he might. So how do you see his role in it? Yes, I suspect that Rishi Sunak um, pretty much agrees with what we heard from Cates there. He's very, very liberal in immigration. Um, you probably, I'm, I'm not sure I sure agree with her, but salaries are going up. They're, they're going down at the worst um, 
rate in real terms since post-war history, but the, he will nonetheless be regarding it as a solution to a problem, and that problem being where do you find the workers. Right now, he's got a real, a real issue. I mean, we had, figures were slipped out this week showing there are 5.3 million people in this country on out-of-work benefits. They've had something like 12% of the whole workforce. In Manchester, 18%. It's pretty much one in five in Liverpool, in Glasgow, in um, Birmingham. This is just an absolutely staggering, scandalous failure. How you can manage to combine mass joblessness at a time of um, a worker shortage crisis is the first time I think this needs to have ever been combined in the economic history of this island. Now, that is partly because Rishi Sunak has struggled so much to reform welfare. It's very difficult to do. Um, what's happening is now we're getting 5,000 people a day are claiming sickness benefit. And the official figures are that this is going to get a lot worse. The internal government estimates are that there's going to be a 50% increase in those claiming disability benefits to 3.6 million over the next five years. Now, if you're Rishi Sunak and you're looking at these figures, there's two implications here. One, this is going to be very, very expensive. But two, how on earth are you going to grow your economy if people are dropping out of the workforce as fast as this? I think he's lost control of welfare. I think they're in a blind panic about the interaction between mental health claims and sickness benefits. Um, they're in denial about the extent of the welfare problem, but the one thing that can get them out of jail here is turning on the mass immigration tap. And I think that's what he's doing. And unlike the um, free movement era, where nobody really decided how many EU nationals were coming in and out, Rishi Sunak is in complete control of how many visas are issued. Um, and if he decides to issue almost half a million, as he did for, uh, for the last 12-month period, then that's a decision made ultimately in 10 Downing Street. So I don't think he can really claim to be surprised. Now, what I think is a bit alarming is I, 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 where I differ from Kate is I, in the office, I think it's fair to say that Kate and I are probably um, you know on the liberal end of the spectrum, but where we differ here or whether Kate thinks I've let down the cause, is that I am um, prepared to admit that kale-munching, foreign-language-at-home-speaking liberals like me need to understand that there are flip sides to what we do. Those flip sides are tend to be borne by people who live on the other end of a district line to me. I live in Richmond, the other end of that is Dagenham. And it was a trip to Dagenham in 2006 that changed my mind on immigration. Um, I was introduced um, to some BNP voters by a Labour MP, John Crudis, who wanted to show me that their concerns were real, they were legitimate. They didn't, there's not being anti-immigration, and it's anti-immigrants, it's simply asking, who's going to educate my kids, where's my GP appointment, um, I need a house. All of these pressures are huge, and to say, uh, and they're getting bigger. Now, you can't, of course, I, I can, Kate will say you can't blame the immigrants for that, of course you can't. But what you can blame is politicians who aren't being realistic about the demographic pressures they're facing. Now, what I argue in my piece is if we are to accept the equivalent of the city of Southampton every year in net migration, then we need to ask who's going to build the next city of, of Southampton, who's going to build the houses, who's going to look after the kids, who's going to tend their sick. This has got public service pressures that we need to talk about right now if this is the new normal for Britain. And, and do you think Rishi is prepared to talk about that right now, or is he just going to ignore it? I think it's politically difficult for him to admit what's going on. Politically difficult to admit that for all of that talk during the Brexit campaign about stimming migration, they've decided to go radically the other way. 
And I think that we're in danger of leading to another period of dishonesty where the government will not admit them to the failure in welfare reform. They're there in black, black and white in its own projections. But, and if you carry on with this denial, then you aren't really going to get the preparations in place to build the infrastructure to accommodate the extra 2 million, 3 million immigrants we're going to be getting in the next few years. So uh, I think these are real concerns. And I think, and, and by the way, I think that mass immigration has overall been a big success culturally, socially, economically. I think we're the most welcoming country pretty much in the world. We've overtaken Kate's Native America, I think, in terms of the amount of proportion of immigrants in the workforce. Now it's 20%. And I think we're a pretty good melting pot, but we're a melting pot that needs an apparatus. We don't regard ourselves as an immigrant nation, yet we have become one. Kate, I wonder what you I wonder what you say to that. I mean, if if historically we have been um, this success when it comes to welcoming immigrants, as uh, as Fraser says, do you think that assimilation can continue to be a success given that we're dealing with numbers now, uh, annual numbers that are so much higher than we've ever had before? Is that not uh, put at risk? Well, of course we can, because if you look at who's coming, there's pretty overwhelming acceptance in this country that they would like them to be here. The majority of students who are here are going to leave. A lot of people argue, including myself, that they shouldn't be counted in these net immigration statistics anyway, because them and any dependent they bring, and that's just for postgraduates, um, you know, the majority of them are going to be going. Then you have so-called, you know, we can define this at the moment, it's defined as £26,000 a year. We have um, high-skilled immigrants who are, broadly speaking, net contributors. And we have refugees. And the UK showed an outpouring towards the Ukrainians that they made it very clear that they wanted to come here. They housed them in their own homes. Of course, we can continue to assimilate. But, you know, Fraser played a funny little statistical game there, which I'm going to call out. He he said, well, you know, wages are, are taking real terms hit. Well, of, of course they are. Your average wage in the private sector is raising by about 6 or 7%, but because of inflation, it's actually a hit to your overall real wage of about 3%. Extremely painful. That's something that we're all experiencing, and that is the hell that is inflation. That is why inflation is such a disease. That is not because migrants are taking your job. That is not because it's immigrants versus native workers. As I said, there are a record million number of vacancies out there. If you want a job and a higher paying job than it would have been a few years ago, you can absolutely go find one. I also think there's been a bit of misunderstanding about how the immigration system works. And I know how it works very well because I've been through it for a decade. Fraser talks about this as public policy, like Rishi Sunak is sitting there approving visas himself. Well, this one can come in, this one can't. Um, We have a system in this country where visas are employer led. So you become a sponsor, you pay to do that. You hire workers from abroad, you pay to do that, they pay to do that, they pay the NHS surcharge, you know, they pay their tax to the NHS. Some people are also paying thousands of thousands of pounds on their visa just to be able to come into this country. They pay that additionally to the NHS. There's so much private money involved here, which is to the benefit of of native Brits, and it is employer-led. So sure, Fraser, we could have a system where the government actually says, nope, sorry, you met the criteria, but we don't want you here. You could tighten the criteria. No, well, sure, and, and, and Fraser, you could argue for that. I mean, I think, again, I go back, the ultimate Brexiteer Boris Johnson made things a little bit easier because he thought that these people contributed to the country. But if you want to argue that it should be extremely difficult to bring in tech workers, to bring in people to create the UK Silicon Valley, you can make that argument. I'm saying it's the lever is entirely in the hands of but Fraser. Here. But 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 you you keep saying that, and I just think that you have to realize what you're arguing for. If you think the state 
should have an industrial strategy where it centrally plans how many migrants we have, and that's better done in the hands of the state than it is in private business. Of course you can make that argument. I'd be surprised if you made that argument, but of course you can make that argument. But I do believe in border control. I'm not sure if we differ on this point. I've I fundamentally believe in border control. So there's there's the nothing about this where, system where the that... Drawn, right? There's nothing about this system. The 700,000 figure are all legal migrants. They're all on the record. The last thing I just want to say is that you talked about 2006 and the voters that you met. And you're completely right to say that their perspective is, is very, very important in this debate because if we don't address it, it can lead to far more toxic things, far more toxic voting patterns. Yeah. But that's also from 2006. This is 2023. We have a completely different immigration system now, one that is much more controlled as was promised for Brexit. Sounds like you still don't think it's controlled enough, but we are not where we were pre-Brexit. This is a fundamentally different system. Fraser, we have an election looming. And what do you think these figures might mean for the Tories? And, and can you kind of see the resurgence of a more right-wing party on the on the horizon too well this to me is the puzzle uh, i think um I, I i disagree with kate that things are so much different pre-2006 i think what we have learned from our accidental first wave of mass immigration it wasn't planned it just happened and what we learned from that is that if you don't prepare the right infrastructure of people, they're going to be concerned, there is going to be a backlash. And if you tell them that they're xenophobic for raising these concerns, they're going to vote for a party that will listen for them. So I think we, um, I think we can see what's coming. We've pretty much got away with it right now. If you look across the country, we've, we've just had massive local election campaigns. I don't know how many political parties there were standing for election. Um, but I remember the days when the BNP would be standing for local government elections and doing reasonably well. And the closest thing we've had to a right-wing challenger to the Tory party is Richard Tice's reform group. They fielded something like 500 MPs and they got something like 495 failures. So there is very little sign that I can see of a political backlash against this mass migration system, which is odd when you think of the size of, of mass migration. Now, it, this could be um, two things. It could be that the public regard this as being a lot more acceptable, palatable this time, because we're not talking about um, anybody coming here without a job to be a burden on the state. By and large, if you'd be given a visa, it's because you've got a fairly decent job that you're going to go to. So you're talking about commuters, you're talking about people who will contribute to society. I also believe that Britain is the most, you know, one of the most open-minded countries in the world about accepting new people as long as they play by the rules, um, which I think the overwhelming majority of immigrants do. So it could well be that people are going to be more relaxed about this because it is controllable this time and because of a criteria which we set and the hurdles which... Everybody, including them, I was noticing Tajikistan is a great benefactor of this new system. They had seven people a year come in before Brexit, now it's seven people a day. So we're now getting this great big variety of, uh, of people. Britain is now the country where the workers of the world are coming to unite. The question is, will there be a backlash? Now, I think there will be if we do not take this seriously and if we don't collectively work out what this is going to mean and how we best prepare for it. And I'm talking about um, house building targets being seriously higher than they are right now because they are going to have to live um, somewhere. I think this means of having, I would argue, for pro-market reforms in public services. You never see clothes shops or food shops running out of wares because of um, population pressures of migrants. They respond to demand. It's only the government-run public services that don't. But if we're entering this situation now where we're going to get a population that fluctuates really quite dramatically, 
um, as a result of mass migration, you're going to need public services who will respond to that. And also it comes down to the, perhaps the biggest enigma, what was Brexit about? Was Brexit really about controlling migration? If so, there's going to be a lot of angry voters claiming they were betrayed. Or was Brexit simply about controlling migration, about managing globalisation on our own terms? It could well be that there's nowhere near the backlash which you might think, and that people do settle down to a new normal of mass migration. Um, in a way, that almost um, concerns me more, because I would like to think that for as long as there are 5 million people on out-of-work benefits, we do think that's a pretty serious problem. We do have the option now, I suppose, of running our economy in a way that simply bypasses those who are collectively plonked in a box marked too difficult, that we don't do the difficult, politically dangerous work of welfare reform. I would hate to think if we're about to take that path. And that's my biggest concern right now, that if were it not for mass migration, Sunak would have no option but to reform welfare radically and to do it quickly. But he now has a get-out-of-jail-free card, which he is playing. It might work, but if it does work, then I wonder who, if anybody, is going to care about the millions of people who are being consigned to pretty much a life on, on benefits. But we're not out of jail. We have a million vacancies in this country. The people you talk about could walk into jobs tomorrow. If Sunak were really taking the get-out-of-jail-free card, he'd double the amount of migration. But the truth is the people coming in don't begin to touch the number of vacancies we have. You're hinting very strongly, and you did about raising the threshold, that you think that the 700,000 figure is too high. So who would you remove from this group of high-skilled workers, of refugees, and of students? And in addition to that, Fraser, what will you do when that number of vacancies continues to rise and inflation gets worse because of it? If I were Rishi Sunak, I would double down on welfare reform right now. I would, I would, um, you're right in saying that even letting in a million immigrants has not stated the, the jobs for the hunger demands. So, so why isn't he doing it? I don't know. I think he should do. But I think he, I think the pressure is a way is, is relieved to a huge extent by mass immigration. But with all due respect, I feel like the question still isn't being answered. Why is it immigrants versus native workers when there are a million job vacancies? And if you think that 700,000 number is too high, who out of the current group, not the pre-Brexit, the post-Brexit, Boris Johnson reforms group, who wouldn't you have here? I would probably raise the salary threshold higher. You, so you want fewer high-skilled workers? That, that's it. So you want fewer high-skilled You talk as if every single um, visa applicant is a high-skilled worker. I'm not quite sure that's the case. I noticed, take the care homes, for example. To me, that's the example I've had my eye on ever since this started. They pay less than supermarket workers. They've always been badgering the government for more migrants. Um, and now they've pretty much got their way. And they are actually paying relative to the average salary. So let's talk about inflation. Relative to the average salary, the care home workers are actually paying less than they did before. I had rather hoped that we were about to embark via on Brexit on a new economic model where if your business model is based on underpricing labour, on paying people far too little for a skilled job like working in a care home, then you you wouldn't get away with it anymore. But now it seems that the, they have The done. care home workers are not on the high-skilled list. The care home workers are on the vacancies, shortages list, because we cannot fill those positions in the UK. I think it's interesting... I think it's interesting that you were... I think it's interesting that you would have fewer people coming here, paying tax, paying for the NHS, paying for pensions, perhaps a conversation for another time. Thank you, Fraser, and thank you, Kate. Next up... Novelist Elif Shafak writes about the Turkish elections in her diary for this week's magazine. 
She writes that ultra-nationalism and religious fundamentalism were the real winners in last Sunday's poll. Elif joins us now with The Spectator's Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews. Elif, could you start by telling our listeners what went through your mind when you watched the results come in on Sunday? You, you know, it was a, it was a difficult evening uh, and, and it wasn't emotionally easy to follow as the votes started coming in. And anyone who follows Turkey closely would know this. Most of the media platforms are controlled by the government. So if you want to get objective news, you have to look at the periphery because the, the media is so heavily controlled. Um, and, and there were moments during that evening when the vote counting was slowed down, especially in places where the opposition was much stronger. So in a nutshell, it wasn't easy to understand the truth, what was going on. Um, but what I can tell you is that this was this election fair? I think there's a big question mark. Uh, and the outcome has been quite depressing, demoralizing. It's not over yet as there's a runoff. There's going to be a second round in, in, in two weeks. But it's not easy because the, the government in power, they have been there for two decades now. The AKP came to power with promises of liberal reforms, a lot of rhetoric about joining the EU, making a new inclusive egalitarian constitution. But even though they came to power with those promises, as they stayed in power each passing year, they became more and more nationalist more and more religious, and definitely more and more inward-looking and authoritarian. So it's not easy to challenge that kind of monopoly of power after two decades. And regarding the runoff in two weeks' time, what do you expect will happen? Is it Does it seem almost all but certain that Erdogan will win, given that he got very close to 50% in the first round? Or are you hopeful that the opposition might be able to, to beat him to the final result? You know, we we have to remain hopeful. Uh, Lots of good things have been also happening in Turkey. As you know, the opposition was able to come together, even though the opposition has been quite fragmented for a long time. Kılıçdaroğlu is is a decent politician. He has run a campaign based on kindness, calmness. None of this is easy in a country where there's a lot of division, where people are extremely polarized, bitterly politicized, divided into their own islands. So he's always followed a discourse of calm, harmony, coexistence. You know, how do we bring people together around shared democratic values? And I find all of that very important, actually. I do not underestimate it in any way. Uh, it is tough, so I cannot claim that you know it's going to be an easy shift of power in Turkey. But we need democracy. We Turkish people deserve democracy. There's so many people in Turkey who want a proper egalitarian, pluralistic world and and proper democracy, functioning democracy for their children and their grandchildren. So these people are there. Maybe we don't hear their voices as much, but women, young people in this election for the first time, five million people voted, you know, for the first time. So Turkey has a very young population and, and their voices matter. Owen, you are someone who follows Turkish politics closely. Would you agree with, as Aliyev says in her diary, that Turkey is now at an existential crossroads? Yes, it's absolutely true, because um, there's a, there's kind of two competing narratives or two two ways to look at this, this election. One of them is, 
you know, Erdogan, unlike Vladimir Putin, actually does face a real opposition. He didn't win the first round of the election. Turkish democracy is not yet dead. But and in fact, by the way, people tend to forget that in 2018, Erdogan won by with 51.8% of the vote. So it's actually not the first time that he's come very close to losing power, which is obviously not something you could say about Russia. But the big question is, what's going to happen next? I mean, what is the next election going to look like? And is this inexorable, you know, takeover by the the AK party um, of all the institutions eventually going to reach a point where the AK party is, you know, the only party um, and uh, the only viable political party in Turkey. And that's a real, a real existential question because I mean, for the last two decades, uh, I mean, I lived in in, in Istanbul for 15 years and the um, starting right at the beginning of of the Erdogan era. And the narrative was that, you know, that, that Turkey is, you know, the, the 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 biggest Muslim democracy in the region. It can show an example of you know, uh, you know pluralism and coexistence of secular uh, of, a, of a secular state with a religious society, and that Erdogan was a new kind of he wasn't the traditional sort of Arab style uh, Muslim Brotherhood type of Islamist. All these things that we were talking about, you know, right at the beginning of the Erdogan era, have like fallen away one by one. Like the engagement with Europe has fallen away. The sort of new kind of Islamist thing has fallen away, and sort of one by one, we're actually just and one by one, these sort of hopes and illusions have have been shattered and you're just left with not exactly an islamist state it's not uh, turkey is, is still quite a long way from that but at least but, but but it's certainly no longer really a fully functioning democracy and the question is you know it's kind of miraculous that that we still have these elections despite these two decades of Erdogan's power. You know, will he finally succeed in in, in crushing democracy entirely? And that's the really existential and important question. Well, Alif, you say in your in your diary that, rather to Owen's point at the end there, that it is a mistake to call these elections free and fair, at least totally so. Uh, could you tell our listeners, I wonder, a little bit about how Erdogan has corrupted the democratic process over the course of his years in power it's it's mostly through um you know breaking democratic institutions and norms for a proper democracy to exist i think the ballot box in itself is not enough i have a lot of respect for the ballot box but that in itself does not make a system a democracy i think if you don't have separation of powers if you do not have rule of law if you do not have a free and diverse media and independent academia, if you do not have women's rights, minority rights, LGBTQ plus rights, if you do not have any of these components and only and only the ballot box, that I think is majoritarianism. You know, it's not democracy in the first place. And from majoritarianism into authoritarianism, actually, it's a very quick fall. But on top of that, what happened in Turkey was when you look at the way the media works, for instance, just to give you an example, even in the days leading to the elections, Erdogan was almost on every TV channel, national TV channel, more than like 26, 27 TV channels, whereas Kılıçdaroğlu's airtime was so limited and only on one or two channels, mostly on the periphery, not the mainstream. So there's a huge imbalance there. Or when you look at how Erdogan galvanizes, mobilizes his base, like going to Hagia Sophia, for instance, this is something I wrote about in the piece, um, Hagia Sophia was turned into a mosque 
Whereas to honor its diverse history as a church, as a mosque, and as a museum throughout the centuries, it should have been kept as secular space, open to everyone, people of all religious backgrounds, and none, equally, you know. Uh, but they didn't do that. So they turned it into a mosque, and now that space itself is being used for political rallying. And this is something that Ottoman sultans used to do before they would lead their armies to war. So all those symbols, references to a glorious imperial past, none of that is innocent. Uh, and I and I find that quite worrying, actually, because what we're seeing is not only the rise of religious fundamentalism, Islamism, but alongside the rise of Turkish nationalism, ultranationalism, they're going hand in hand. And, and I find that a very worrying combination. And, and just to finish on, I mean, it, it is clear that still many Turkish people do support Erdogan. What exactly is it that they particularly like about him? Is it the fundamentalism or is it the religious act aspect of it? Um, well, I, I, don't, I don't think uh, you can really call anything about Erdogan's particularly fundamentalist. What, 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 it, what, he's, what he's doing, his, his major base is is uh, religious conservatism conservatives who are you know the uh, who, who are the majority of the population in the Anatolian heartland and in that sense it, strangely enough the electoral map of of Turkey looks kind of like the electoral map of the United States you have you know the the, the coasts who, who who tend to be more secularist and more liberal and you have like a vast Anatolian heartland which tends to be very conservative but the, the really key point that that that, that, that Elif Hanım made was actually you have um, this under, undertow of very aggressive ultranationalist feeling, and actually, that's as much that's as much a danger, in fact, a greater danger than Erdogan himself, and a greater danger than Islam. By the way, we tend to be obsessed with the sort of Islamic side of it, but in fact, it's the nationalism that's the really dangerous part. And sad, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I was personally rather uh, disappointed and, and saddened that uh, you know Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition leader, this felt the need to come out and say, you know, in order to shore up his ultranationalist base and try and get some of the people who voted for third party that, that was the reason why neither won in the first round um, by appealing, by saying we need to throw out, you know, return 10 million immigrants, uh, mostly Syrians, uh, and return them home. And that was actually, you know, I mean, maybe it was good politics and maybe it was populism, but it's kind of terrifying to me that actually even the, you know, the opposition candidate who, as as Elif said, you know, indeed has campaigned on a, you know, program of sort of niceness and democracy feels the need to pander to this ultranationalist you know um, in a great turkey narrative and that's uh, and, and that's a really worrying sign for, for for the future i'm afraid thank you Elif, and thank you owen and finally is reality television ruining sport tom goodenough writes in this week's magazine about how a new trend of tv shows following sports teams is taking the joy away for fans to explain, Tom joins us now, along with The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray. Tom, you write that the line between sport and entertainment is blurring. What's blurring it, and why is it a problem? I mean, I, I risk kind of sounding like a bit of a killjoy here, because I, I know that lots of people get quite a lot of in, enjoyment out of these kind of sports documentaries, um, particularly Welcome to Wrexham, which you know has really kind of taken off. But I think what I find a bit uncomfortable about them is that you're kind of offered a packaged up box set TV version of the real thing. So I think sport and football in particular has kind of never been better. 
we saw last night Man City thrashed Real Madrid 4-0 and I think you know in some ways that when you've got this scripted reality version that's appearing alongside it I just think it, it it's basically a kind of pale imitation of, of the real thing I don't think it's a bad thing in itself I think you know it's fine as a, a kind of form of entertainment but I think um yeah as I say I, I just don't think it's a kind of substitute for, for watching live football seeing the kind of highs and lows of sport I think one one of the things that I kind of love about football and it's hard to admit it at the time but when your team loses when they then go on and win it kind of makes those those victories even sweeter I think and I think in these these kind of documentaries it cuts out those those kind of low bits I guess and you kind of get the get the, the high bits but yeah I just don't think it's a kind of true depiction of what sport is about and Fred, what what do you make of these new scripted reality sports shows? I mean, who do you think they're aimed at? Is it the fans or is it a new audience that they're trying to capture? Uh, well, I'd like to disagree with Tom for the sake of being interesting, but actually I agree entirely. I think if you look at probably the most successful example of these sports documentaries is uh, Drive to Survive, which is the Netflix one about Formula One that has brought a whole new audience. A lot of women now interested in Formula One because of this docu-series. And in fact, I've always found Formula One incredibly boring, but I have watched Drive to Survive and I quite enjoyed it. And now I take a sort of passing interest in Formula One as a result. And, you know, without being cynical, I suppose there's nothing really wrong with that. But I have friends who are Formula One fans for their sins and they think that their sport is being ruined by it because it's becoming quite obvious that the actual sporting spectacle, and there's various conspiracy theories about what have happened in certain races, particularly I think at the end of last season, season not even series, I'm sort of talking in TV terms, in Abu Dhabi there was a quite a controversial decision that meant, that changed the result, that changed the whole um, outcome of the Formula One season. And a lot of people think it was done for the series. And the, even if it wasn't, the fact that people are now speculating about that shows you what 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 goes wrong when uh, you start turning sport into these dramas because everyone has the suspicion that it's PR, that it's mediatized, and this with the internet now that's increasingly the way we talk about everything. You know, if you look at the war in Ukraine or something like that, everybody has a suspicion that it's there's an element of unreality to it, and I think that's something Tom brought out about sport in the piece very well. To go to Freddie's point about it being PR, I think I think that's another thing about these programmes. I think you have to see it as a kind of product, really. So when you think the way in which these, these programmes are, are, are kind of made, so football teams are kind of huge businesses and they have these big PR operations alongside them. And basically it kind of boils down to the fact that they, they don't let the TV cameras in unless there's kind of certain pre-agreed kind of ways in which certain things will be filmed, certain things won't be filmed. And... I mean, I can't say this for sure, but I imagine it's very much the case that the football team is not going to put, is not going to allow something to be put out that they're not happy with. So they'll allow certain things to appear in the kind of final programme that might perhaps not always paint them in a good light. But I think the overall thing you'll see is essentially a kind of advert for the team, I think. So I think it's kind of depressing that on one hand, you're kind of the veil has been lifted and you get this this insight into how football teams work. You know, you see the dressing room... You see the kind of pep talk that the manager might give. But I think you're also not seeing the kind of whole thing, I think, really. But even if you're not seeing the whole thing, Tom, 
what would you say to the accusation that uh, perhaps you are being a bit of a killjoy in that you you're you're essentially gatekeeping and deciding what is the right way of being a fan of something but i think the gatekeeping is kind of being done by the teams themselves really i think so what you're seeing is not the kind of what you're being shown is what the club is happy with you seeing really i think I don't know. I think I think for me, I think nothing can kind of take away from the football game itself. I think, you know, I'm not saying that these, these programmes are fake because they're not, but I think turning up to a game uh, or even watching on TV and having kind of no idea what's going to play out in front of you, you know, it might mean your your team kind of gets stuffed 4-0 or you, you might win 4-0. I don't think anything can kind of match that really. I think it's a triumph of PR in, in a way. I mean... Uh... The French intellectual Roland Barthes, if I can get into really pseudo-intellectual territory here, he wrote this essay about how everything would become wrestling. Wrestling was sort of what the future would look like. And he meant staged wrestling and sort of bread and circuses, essentially, for the crowds, and that politics would become that. And a lot of people, when Trump was elected, a lot of people looked at that essay and said, this is what's happening. It's, it's, it's WWF has, has overtaken politics. I think now, you know, that is slightly what's happening in sport. And it's, what happening, it's what's happening in a lot of things because it makes things easier for us to understand. And it also brings the viewer into a sort of cynical game where you think you understand what the plot line is, not what's actually happening. So you, you think you're part of the PR understanding of it. And I think it is, it is depressing and it's bleak. And, it's, and as Tom says, it's sanitised. And Fred, Fred, what do you think it means for the players themselves? We've already kind of become quite used to the idea of the footballer as a sort of moral crusader I mean is this just going to make that even more intolerable yeah I think I think sports stars have to play a character and the Arsenal one you know I remember like Saka's like the good guy and then like a Bamiyang sort of hanging around as the as the possible bad guy and <laughs> and and then in the F1 Verstappen has to play the bad guy and you know they're they all play these parts and and of course you know, it's not as simple as good guy, bad guy, obviously, even in the programme. But I think reality is even more complicated because often you don't know what someone's motives are and so on. Whereas I think in these programmes, they, they they try and paint everyone as a certain type of person. Like a, you could be the, the hard scrabble hero or the guy who just got lucky and is grateful for where he is, you know. And it, so you have to take on a sort of a certain role. I think there's also, I, I don't know, I think as Freddie says, like, you know, you see different players have different roles. But I think sometimes when the kind of veil is lifted and you see what happens, I think it, it can kind of be quite unintentionally kind of amusing as well, I think. So Arteta, who's Arsenal's manager, I've always quite liked him, but there's a clip in um, All or Nothing where he gets a light bulb and basically shows no light comes from it. And then he gets an ex- extension lead. And then plugs the light in, and basically, basically, his kind of point to his team is, we only work if we're all connected, and it's it's horrendous. I mean, it's it's yeah, like I find very yeah, amazing. yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, David Brent couldn't couldn't advise you better than that. And I think you know, I'm shedding a tear just yeah. I don't know, and I think for me, you know, actually, it kind of I don't know, kind of better off not not seeing that side of, of football. Maybe kind of leaving your imagination to do the work about how these team talks are inspiring and. I think any revelation of a team talk is... Quite, there was a Brendan Rodgers one that was particularly embarrassing. And, and then uh, Pep Guardiola in the Man City documentary, he had that very embarrassing bit where he's trying to sound passionate and you can tell he's hamming it up for the cameras because yeah. he goes, if you hate me, guys, hate me, but we've got to win this game. 
That's not a good impression of Pep Guardiola at all. <laughs> I think also, just to, just to chip in again, I think um, maybe the slightly depressing thing about these kind of programmes is uh, whether our kind of attention spans on uh, are kind of diminishing in the sense of actually watching live football can, can be quite boring, I think. And I think there's a sense that what these kind of Netflix and Apple TV shows are, are kind of doing is they're removing the kind of boring bits and packaging up a kind of entertaining version of um, of kind of football, I think. So you can see why people people kind of go for it because, you know, are you going to risk watching a kind of 90 minutes of football where it might end nil-nil or would you watch a kind of 45-minute Netflix documentary where, you know, it's been edited to perfection and, you know, it's going to... Yeah, it's going to be dramatic. No, I can't get my children to watch football. Uh, I think probably, but they quite happily watch a, a documentary about it. Yeah, and when you're in football stadiums as well, you know, you, you kind of look around and everyone's kind of staring at their phone anyway and you think, <laughs> <laughs> what's the point of being here? <laughs> thank you, Tom, and thank you, Freddie. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up a copy of this week's magazine where you can read everything we've talked about. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week.